0: Hi, everybody. Welcome to Drag Racing's Golden Era. As always, we are glad that you're joining us tonight. Um, We're going to be joined here in just a second by Hand Grenade Harry Hibbler. Uh, We're going to ask him how he got that cool nickname. just a quick note, uh coming up here in the next couple of weeks, I made contact with Terry Capt, and he is going to be joining us probably in about two or three weeks. So it'll be an exciting program with him too. Uh, Gary Beck was giving him a hard time when we interviewed him. So we're gonna get him to respond to it and it'll be a good time. So all right. Without me talking anymore, I would uh it's my pleasure to welcome uh Harry Hibbler to our program to Drag Racing's Golden Era. Harry, it's really great. I'm really glad that you're here with us. Thanks for joining us.
1: I'm glad to be here and uh whatever you want to know I'll try to be uh, I'll try to fill it in how's that
0: That's great. That's what we try to do here try to fill in all the gaps of our knowledge and uh the first thing that we always start with Harry is um did when did your interest in cars begin did that begin early for you how did it all happen for you
1: I uh I guess I started thinking about cars when I was you know in my before I got into my teens Uh, My dad was always tinkering, he built little homemade uh, tractors, and I figured out how to make the little tractors go faster than they were supposed to be going, uh, which I did, did manage to turn one of them upside down simply because it was going faster than a short wheelbase could go. And that was probably 10, 11 years old.
0: We, we know a lot of the history of, of you, but for the people that I know a lot of the history of, of your, your story, but for the people out there that don't know, um, my understanding is once you graduate, you graduated from high school at the age of 16. Is that correct?
1: That's correct.
0: How did you manage to do that? Were you just that smarter ahead of the curve? Cheated. <laughs> Actually,
1: <laughs> I started, I, uh, I started grade school at one at, uh, uh, four years old. Okay. Actually, uh, in, in Albuquerque, New Mexico, I started there and then I took the sixth and the seventh grades in the same year. So I wound up um, thinking that I was doing something smart. And I realized after you know it was all over that everybody was older than me, bigger than me and more coordinated than me. So I don't know if it was a good idea or not, but I did it.
0: So my understanding was that pretty much right away when you graduated, you jumped on a bus and headed for L.A. where the action was at.
1: Yeah, my dad and I had a little discussion, uh, disagreement. I was offered a uh, position uh, by the FBI to Uh, Because of my grades and stuff that uh, if I would sign for 10 years, uh, I would at the end of the 10 years, I'd be a registered uh, attorney uh, and free to go. All I had to do was work for the FBI and they would pay me and all of that. My dad did not want me going to Washington, D.C. at 16 years old, all by myself. So uh, when that didn't happen, I got on a bus and came to California.
0: So did you did did you actually want to do that? Did you actually want to go be an FBI agent?
1: At the time, I it sounded pretty romantic. You know, I mean, <laughs> sixteen years old. If somebody says FBI, you know, that was when the FBI was still recognized as being an an honest organization. <laughs> so, uh, I thought it would have been pretty spectacular. And you know, not knowing that much about what an attorney even did, it sounded sounded good because they made a lot of money.
0: Yeah. So, you land in l a and what what happens when you get there? I assume you didn't just go right into drag racing and the whole uh car story, did you?
1: No, I had an aunt and uncle that lived in uh California in Southern California, and they said that if I would pay rent and all of that, I could come live with them so i'm that's where I landed. Uh, I wound up my first job in California was I was a termite exterminator. <laughs> Now, that worked out real good because at that time I was skinny and uh, small enough to get under houses and go do all of that. So I wound up spending a a little over a year working there. And uh, in the meantime, cars came into my life. That I had to have a car to drive to work. And I found a little 41 Ford Coupe. And all of a sudden... I started playing with cars.
0: <laughs> so I I saw some place that you drove a midget at one point. Is that correct early on here? Uh, yes and no. Now I say
1: yes and no because I was 17 years old and my buddy that I hooked up with down in California, we started playing with cars. Uh, he said, I, I know where we can buy a midget. Now, we neither one of us knew what a midget was. We thought it was a little tiny person, but it sounded like something, hey, let's do it. So we bought this thing for three or $400, and uh, we were going to go racing. And believe it or not, we tried a few times, but at 17 years old, your first car uh, or your first uh, outing with something like that, I think we spent uh, most of uh, a couple of evenings just even trying to get it started. We pushed it probably more miles than it ever got run after it did get fired. <laughs> it, was, it was an entry. It did get me started going down to old Ascot sta- uh, the old Ascot Stadium and stuff like that. So, you know, it's like, hey, this is really great. Let's, uh, let's see what more. What, what more could we do with this.
0: I, I've never, I never had the opportunity to go to ASCOT. What was that? Was I, I keep hearing about this place out there in Southern California. Was it a, was it a Mecca of circle track racing out there at the time or what?
1: Well, you know, at one point in time in Southern California, you had more racetracks than you did, uh, gas stations almost. So, you know, you could go to a gas, to a, to a racetrack in 20, 30 minutes, uh, even with no freeways. In fact, it's without a freeway, you could get there faster. But uh, there were a lot of racetracks. uh, So there we were. And uh, it just, it was the heyday. You couldn't make any money racing a midget, but it was a fun deal.
0: Yeah. Well, so... (laughs) You transition over into drag racing at some point in all of this, don't you? Is it with your street car or did you actually build a car? Well,
1: actually, you know, about that time, uh, I met up with a gentleman who, uh, he and I became friends. Uh, he was in a, he was starting a, a car club, which, you know, in Southern California, every block had a, a car club. And he was starting up a club, the Ghost Riders, and I became a ghost rider. Yeah, you know, it was, uh, we, uh, the club bought a little uh, 34 three window coupe. And by that time, uh, I would have been probably up into the 18 years old or so. I had switched over from termite extermination, I was a full blown carpenter. So, you know, I took my skill saw with the carburetor blade and chopped the top on the 34 Coupe. And as always, we didn't have a lot of money. So, you know, we used curtain rods or uh, actually hangers, uh, wire uh, clothes hangers for welding rod. And uh, it wasn't pretty, but it, it was chopped up and it functioned. And then we, uh, we built a a uh, pretty good sized flathead, uh, and a big stroker and all of that. And, uh, that's where I really got started drag racing.
0: Did you guys say you had the, you had the skills at that point to be able to build a flathead motor?
1: Well, I'm not going to say it ran real good and I'm not going to say it lasted long, <laughs> but, uh, we built it, uh, with how one of the, one of the club members, uh, did do engines. Uh, he built, rebuilt engines and stuff. So he knew enough to be dangerous. Uh, and then, you know, about that time somebody introduced us to alcohol, which we thought was, hey, this smells good at least. So it makes it sound rough. So we got started playing. And there were uh, a half a dozen uh, drag strips close enough that, gee, we could wind up at a drag strip. Like I said, about a half hour, about any direction
0: we wanted to go. It it really is amazing, and that that's why I love this 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 period in history of drag racing because it seemed to be just everywhere in South, and it wasn't just Southern California. There were drag strips everywhere across the country. You guys were lucky, though. You're fortunate in SoCal to have so many drag strips and uh, so many great facilities right there.
1: Well, and we had the weather to go with it, you know, when everybody else was snowed in, uh, she, we were still out here playing, we were having fun, and uh, you had a lot of young, uh, I call it, say young guys, younger people that had, uh, you know, come out of World War II, had money, had learned to work on cars and the engines and stuff in the military, and they wanted to go play too, so it was a hotbed.
0: You know, that's one of those points that I've thought about quite often is that, you know, World War II is over and you got a bunch of GIs coming home that have some skills and, you know, raring to go for life. You know, a lot of these kids hadn't even lived life yet when they went in the military. So they're coming out uh, raring to go. And I guess drag racing was a great avenue for them. And there was there was what uh, salt flat racing and all kinds of racing that went on out there with these guys.
1: See, that was it. We had dry lakes out here. We had uh, uh, did a lot of street racing, too, I'll admit that. You know, I mean, Wednesday night, uh, everybody went to the local drive-in, which was Bob's drive-in, Bob's uh, big boy. But, you know, you showed up there and uh, you'd pick up a race. Uh, At that time, we had to be real careful because when you say you went drag racing on the street, you may have been racing your pink slip on your car. And so, you know, you might, if you lost, you might be walking the next day. (laughs) Uh, But there, the whole San Fernando Valley was, uh, you know, walnut orchards and orange orange orchards. So if, uh, if the cops happened to show up, there were a lot of orchards that you could duck into and hide. And we were pretty good at getting away from getting busted.
0: <laughs> well, and along comes the NHRA, right? And this, the safety safari and teaching these guys how to set up drag strips. And that was sort of a, you know, didn't, the, orig- the origins of the NHRA, if I understand right, was the safety safari would go to car clubs like you were in, what was, uh, and teach you how to run a drag race?
1: Well, good, better, and different. We never saw one Mm of them. Um. (laughs) We just, you know, we were there, we were on our own. I don't think a lot of car clubs in the very beginning uh, saw a safety safari so much as, uh, and and this is my take on what happened when when NHRA started uh, the safety safari thing, those guys mainly went to the local police and different authorities and were you know trying to figure out what can we do to get these kids off of the street, what can we do to make it safer. So they were almost a political uh venture.
0: Yeah. Uh
1: you know, let's let's make the outlaws not seem so outlaws. And uh You know, you joined NHRA because you thought it was going to do something for you, but you weren't sure what it was going to do.
0: (laughs) Well, I guess you know, at least during this period of time that we're what 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 period of time actually are we talking about here? Late fifties.
1: 1951 was when I came to California.
0: Also oh, early 50s.
1: Early 50s. And here again, you know, uh, you had uh, the dry lakes out here in, out of Palmdale and up towards Mojave. You had all of that property out there. Uh, and, I mean, there again, it was a 30-40 minute drive from the valley. And Everybody was out there trying to, how fast can I go, you know, with what I've got? And everybody was making their own parts because you couldn't just go buy parts.
0: Well, so what, what was the actual first organized drag race that you were involved in? Do you remember when that was?
1: You know, I believe the very first organized race I ever went to was at Pomona and uh, it just, boy, I was totally hooked. I, I, we, the club, raced our little coupe there. I raced uh, my uh, street car uh, the same day. Uh, we watched the Bean Bandits and some of those guys go out there and run fast. And we were just, boy, I mean, talk about setting a hook and landing the fish. <laughs> I was landed in Billy up.
0: You know, it, it it's funny because I think everybody that I know that either was a drag racer or a, a hardcore fan like me, it was all the same. All it took was one race, one one whiff of nitromethane, and you were hooked forever. And I I try to take every every friend that I have that is not involved in drag racing, I try to get them to a track because you know, you know how it goes. Once you're there, you're a fan for life.
1: Well, and, you know, uh, there was so much uh, interest in it by so many people that it's like, okay, uh, rather than getting out here on the street and maybe killing somebody or getting hurt or something, this drag racing on an organized basis sounded like a great idea. So there we were. And yeah. uh, I, I have to say this for uh, NHRA and for Wally Parks, you know, uh, I had no clue what NHRA was. I'm not sure they did at the time, but they were trying to find their way to go uh, down the street too. And just having a place to go. And then and, and about that time, uh, Pappy Hart opened up Santa Ana all of a sudden, you know, you're at Santa Ana, and then you had uh, the racetracks down in San Diego. You had them in Saugus. You had it. Boy, there were just racetracks everywhere. So, uh, you wanted to throw your car on the trailer and head out there, just if nothing else, to impress the people on the way out there that you had a race car.
0: Uh, I'm I'm envious of you guys that I I wasn't alive during that era because I, it. It, it sounds like it, it just sounds like it would have been an awesome time to be part of the scene out there I mean the car club the Southern California Car Club was really hopping uh at this point in time too so I mean you know what well, there were a lot of car clubs right around you also with all the drag strips Did, oh. were, were the drag strips actually run mostly by the car clubs or not no no, no. they
1: were they were run for profit
0: okay <laughs> yeah. But, you know, the good
1: news, uh, bad news for you, wishing you had been around the, uh, that time frame, uh, we're a lot older than you are, too.
0: <laughs> so, so
1: there's a negative side to have been here then. But, you know, I, I have to go back and, and, and say that was the golden year. You could do things. Uh, everything was wide open because there were, the rules really couldn't exist. You know, it's like, what what could you try that might work? And if it didn't work, you didn't have a million people knowing that you had just blown it, you know? And and the uh, car club thing, I like I said, almost every little uh, city around here had a car club. Uh, and you had the Road Kings over in Burbank, which was probably one of the biggest car clubs at the time. But uh you know your biggest thing was you had to have your plaque dragging behind you on a little chain so that uh, everybody knew you were a car club man
0: yeah. well so i guess you're you're drag racing on the weekends or who knows but during the week too i don't know you're do, you're doing construction at some point throughout all of this you end up as track manager of the pond, I, I think, I don't know if I'm skipping a whole bunch of time in here, but how did you get from drag racing on the weekends to managing the pond?
1: Well, you know, there again, uh, uh they opened San Fernando, uh, raceway up Frank Hazar uh, had gone to the city and worked with city and worked with, uh, Bill Hannon and, and his group that owned the land. So all of a sudden there was a racetrack right here, local, I went out there, and I don't know. I uh, got to talking to uh, Daryl Morgan, who was the track
0: manager, and
1: before I left that day, I was the tech inspector. Wow! Now that was really uh, an adventure for everybody in concern because I had no clue what I was looking for, and they had no clue what I was going to be looking for either. But uh, believe me, I learned a lot in a real quick time simply because uh, the first thing I saw was that somebody could get hurt if it wasn't done right. And I studied as much as I could uh, to see what would work for safety and, you know, scatter shields and and all of the things that nobody was uh, doing. And... I think we had a pretty good record out there.
0: Well, and you're right about that. I mean, this period of time with, you know, what you were just saying, with the, the rules were almost non-existent and all the experimentation that went on. And it, it, it was a period that was great for the sport, but at the same time it was extremely unsafe in some ways too, wasn't it?
1: Well, it was. And, you know, I guess one of the things that influenced me was the first year I was in Southern California, I got to know a gentleman. You know, we were both 16s. He was actually, I think, 18, but we were close to the same age. Uh, and he got hit by a drunk driver, threw him out of his car, and it killed him. Wow. And that set the pace for me to start thinking about, these cars could hurt you. And so, you know, as soon as I got started at, uh, as the tech guy at San Fernando at the Pond, it's like, hey, let's make sure that as much safety can be built into these things as we possibly can.
0: Well, so we're in a. There's a period of time in here. When did you? When did you actually start managing the pond? What year would that have been? I think.
1: I think I started as tech and, and I believe if I'm not mistaken it was 15, 1955 and then I was about 3 years into it so it would have been 58 or 59 and I took over as manager.
0: Okay, so this this would have actually been if my if I'm remembering this correctly this would have been during the fuel ban.
1: Ooh, actually it started I took over yes, it was during the fuel ban uh when I took over and uh, we never knew that there was a fuel ban at San Fernando simply because, to me, if you built a car and you wanted to run whatever you wanted to run in it, if it was safe, run it. I didn't care if you were trying, you know, uh, that was before nitrous oxide, but if you wanted to inject oxygen directly into the thing, I would have let you. Yeah. As long as you kept it under control.
0: So here's a here's one of these historical questions that since you were there on the scene you probably know the answer to it. What the the fuel ban came down from the NHRA of course, but my understanding was that um CJ Hart was actually sort of the spearhead of that out there. Is that correct? That I
1: don't really know for a fact. Uh you know, it was like everything else. Everybody wanted somebody to blame it on. And if you couldn't blame it on Wally Parks, then you blamed the next guy who was very influential was C.J. Hart. However, uh, C.J. really just wanted, again, he was more, is your car safe than, than what do you got under the hood?
0: Well, I, I guess the, you know, and you know how it goes. Time has gone by, and the stories change as time goes by. So we probably will never know the answer to that. One one of the things that I had heard about that was that CJ just wanted to keep the sport affordable for the guys, and and you know, watching these guys run run the the big speeds and and the expensive engines, he he thought it would become unaffordable. That is the way I heard the story, anyway.
1: Well, but see there again, you gotta go back. You were running two to three gallons of nitro and gallon uh, nitro at that time I think was eleven dollars a gallon. So it wasn't like today, you know, that you're gonna run 12, 13, 14 gallons every run and, and it's 40 bucks a gallon. Um I don't think so much it was cost as they were trying to get the insurance companies to backpedal. And since the pond was owned by the folks that built uh, Hawaiian, part of Hawaiian Village, uh, the, they did the airport marina. They, they were a huge construction company worldwide. So the insurance for the racetrack was under their umbrella I had better insurance than probably 99% of the tracks in the country. And it was more affordable. So they didn't tell us anything about what kind of fuel we could run or any of that. They just said, you know, here's the rules. Here's what you do. If there's an accident, here's how you handle it. And that was all they really cared about. So we weren't shackled. (laughs)
0: <laughs> so what what's during this period of time when you're managing out there what 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 are some of the great safety improvements that you saw through this period
1: just uh the chassis themselves uh you know you started going from muffler tubing to uh chrome molly tubing and and building the roll cages uh go back there was a time when the cars a roll cage, if it went shoulder high, it was a lot. You know, it's kind of like the midget days. The midgets had no roll bars in them above your shoulder. So what protected your head and your neck? Well, stupidity is what protected you.
0: Well, I I guess if, if you guys were still running fuel out there, um, you know, during the fuel ban, it did that make you unique as a track or were there other tracks that were doing the same?
1: You know, there was a lot of talk about guys slipping nitro into, uh, you know, in, when they were running other tracks, but we were just open with it. We had a class for it. We had gas dragsters and gas cars. We had fuel dragsters, fuel cars. I wanted it to be on the open as long as you knew what you were doing and you were taking care of yourself.
0: Okay, so while you're managing the track, you also had your own top fuel career going on, didn't you?
1: Well, yes, and, and here again, you know, guys would show up. Hey, my driver's late, my driver's sick, or uh, every so often somebody would say, you know, guy running the guy driving my car tells me this is what's happening, but I don't believe him. So I'd jump in the car and make a run. And, yeah, I wasn't supposed to. And so, you know, it was not a big deal over the PA or anything. I just jumped in the car and made the run. Uh, So, yeah, I cheated as far as that part was going. But I just wanted to drive the cars. Plus, it also gave me a better understanding of what was going on uh, for the guys when they would bolt into the car.
0: Well, <laughs> you, know, you saw what I put in the email. Uh, Carl Olson accused you of being a r- ride whore at one point when I was talking to him. He goes, that guy would drive anybody's car.
1: <laughs> well, you know, I did it for the fun of it, number one. And number two, I learned a lot that way too. You know, I mean, uh, I, when I drove the uh, rat trap, the original fuel-altered uh, rat trap, got to go back, that was an 87-inch wheelbase car. That was the same wheelbase as a Volkswagen. And uh, I mean, I think I ran 218 or 219 uh, back when that was really fast. And it taught me how to drive that car, though. And and I will have to say this. Willie Borsch had the best advice. He said, if it's between the guardrails, don't lift. Now, that's, and if you go back, that's how he drove. Uh, and the car could get sideways, but you could straighten it out. So, you know, that was the, the thing that was so unique was that it gave me an opportunity to learn different driving styles or whatever. Yeah. But I was just doing it simply because I had the fun of doing it.
0: Well, you can, you can have words with Carl next time you see him out there.
1: <laughs> you no, know, I will have to say this for Carl Olson. If anybody ever supported my career and kept me from getting banned from drag racing, it was Carl Olson. You know, <laughs> he he literally went to NHRA and to the UDRA and those guys and told them back off on me. He and Lou Bainey and, and were they helped keep me in the sport. But I have to say this, that, uh, without Carl the sport would have been a whole lot different anyway.
0: Yeah. And I, it's been the great, one of the great thrills of, of, of my life in the last few years here to be able to call Carl Olson, a friend. And he is, uh, he's a heck of a guy. And I, he's given me an education that I could have never got any place else, you know, with the history of the sport and stuff. But I got to ask you the rat trap. I mean, Come on, that thing. You know, there's a famous picture of uh, Willie Borsch in the Winged Express uh, at the Winter Nationals at Pomona, where he literally is sideways out on the track, and he managed to pull that back. But, I mean, those altered, and everybody talks about them. You know, we wish they'd bring the alters back, but it's never going to happen. But that has to be a handful, and it has to be a thrill, Right.
1: Well, the other thing and you you brought it up earlier what was some of the safety features and I talked about the uh, chassis with the original rat trap the first time I made a run pulled the chute, and uh, Don Green who owned the car he and his wife they jacked the car up put it on jack stands just in front of the engine the motor mounts and jumped on the front axle that's <laughs> what's going on here well it turns out that when you pull the chute the weight transferred forward the chassis would bend a little bit so they would put it on jack stands jump on the front axle and straighten the chassis out i mean now i can tell you that the the next generation rat trap had a whole lot stronger chassis under it so that would put Why didn't that break? Because God was looking out for stupid drivers. (laughs) Uh, I think he likes drag racing, too. He didn't want (laughs) what it could have been. But, you know, that was some of the things that you learned. Uh, The first run I ever made in a really fully what I would call a bonsai type top fuel car was for John Schmeiser. And I think I ran 2.01 or 2.02, the first run in the car, which, of course, was against my rules. You make a half pass and tell everybody how good you are, and then you go run full speed. And I just got in the car and ran full run. I pull the chute, and the next thing I know, the front wheels are sitting sideways instead of pointing, uh, you know, the right direction. And Glenn Woosley, who had been driving for Smizer, called me at home that night and he says, I heard you drive Smeiser's, you drove Smizer's car today. And I said, yeah. He said, what'd you think? I said, I don't know. It oiled me in, caught on fire, but wh- what was wrong? And he said, did the front wheels go sideways on you? And I said, yeah. He said, that's why I quit driving, because he he wouldn't fix them. <laughs> so there again, uh, you know, I'm not taking a shot at John Smizer. it's just that it was something that he would fix it with a little silver tape and some baling wire, and that was it. Instead of fixing it properly, so there again, it I learned right there how to really watch out for some of those kind of things that guys were trying to cheat.
0: You know, it's funny. I th- it, it, you said you had that rule. I think uh, I remember talking to Carl Olson since we brought him up that he had that same rule. You never just jump in somebody's car and make a full pass on it. You just never do that because you don't know what you're getting yourself into.
1: Well, yeah, but, you know, as soon as you put your foot on the throttle and the thing starts to move, you think, oh, hey, I I can handle this. (laughs) I never thought the car, I I never thought a car was going to hurt me. Yeah. I really never thought. And and I uh, took some serious uh, rides, let's put it that way. <laughs> and, I mean, I cut one car and a half at Long Beach oh, and the clutch came out of it and a few things like that. But I never felt at any time ever that the car was going to hurt me.
0: Well, <laughs> you're right about that. God must like drag racing because he kept you safe, didn't he? So uh, here's a question I need to ask you about. During this period of time, um, the uh, the U.S. Turbine 1, now if I remember right, it was George. I actually talked with George Hutchison about a year ago. He was driving that. Did yeah. you get in that or did you get in it after when they, when they, when they put a fuel motor in it? it? I think that they converted it, right?
1: No, actually, George was running the turbine car but he wanted to play with it but he wasn't sure what to do with it and you know it was just one of those things he says you want to take a ride in it and i said sure let's do it um the turbine car what made it very unique is it was driving through the wheels but there was no clutch or anything else to and you didn't have a uh uh flywheel and all of that to act as kind of a gyro to stabilize the car. And the first run that I made in the car, I realized what it was doing. The tires were growing at different rates. You know, one tire's going uh, an inch bigger here than the next run, So the car wanted to drive around it. So you drove it like a sprint car or a midget. As soon as it started to make a left turn, you would turn to the right and vice versa. And I think I ran 218 or 219, the second run in the car. And then George started playing around with the amount of the way the the fuel was put in it and how it was mixed. And think about this for just a minute. I've thought about it since it was over, but that whole terminate thing was sitting above your head. So you're sitting right under it. The last pass we made with the turbine turbinek in it, uh, it actually lifted, started lifting uh, sides off of the wall inside the combustion chamber. Wow! So it was a little lean, or I mean, if it had been, you know, a piston engine, it would have been lean.
0: Yeah. Uh,
1: we put too much oxygen, too. I don't know what we did wrong, but we were starting to kill that thing, and it could have exploded. And if you think about it, we were laying right underneath of that.
0: Oh, wow. You all know, right. I, I saw, I came across a video, uh, Harry of, I believe it was George out at San Fernando driving that thing. And it was all over the track. He was, he made a single pass, but I mean, that thing was from one side of the track to the other. Wow.
1: Well that was the problem. Actually as soon as after the second run in the car actually after the first run. I think I got it down the track pretty much in the same lane every run. So, you know, uh, it, but it, it was a fun car too and I, and I have to say this now here again you go to stupid drivers. But, you know, you had to, you're sitting there on the starting line. Nothing's happening. Dead silence and they count you down, you know, 10 9 8 7. And I'm sitting there and I'm walking, looking up in the grandstands and unfortunately or fortunately, there's a lady lady giving her baby a bottle and I'm sitting there and they hit zero and I just sat there and George thought something was wrong. So he started to walk over and I just motioned him no. And then I hit the throttle and it fired. The last thing I saw before I went back to watching what I should have been doing was this baby in the air and the bottle going one way, the baby going the other way because (laughs) the baby just, she jumped and threw it up. So not always smart driving, but it seemed like fun at the time. (laughs) Uh, It's, the car was very unique and it's a shame that it couldn't have and done, and, and maybe even a class set for it. But see, there again, NHR didn't like it because they didn't know how to deal with it. So let's just make it illegal.
0: Yeah. Well, and that, and that car ended up with a fuel motor in the back of it, right? And honestly, that if I think about the timing of that, that would have been one of the first first true rear engine dragsters, is that correct?
1: Well it was and I was I wasn't real keen on a back motored car anyway. I liked the motor up in front. you could see what it was doing. you could see where it was, you know what the motor was doing. Uh, you knew if you were starting to lose the cylinder things were starting to go away. But the other side of that was everybody was pushing the back motored car and we had the chassis sitting there it seemed stupid not to use it so we put uh, we put a, a big Chrysler in the back of it. Uh, There again, that was one of my fun rides, because uh, when Frank Hazard, race car specialties, when they built the car and put the back motor in it, he had two or three different guys that came in from uh, the aircraft industry that did welding for him at night. Well, it seems as though when it one end, one at the other end, working to each other, but they were supposed to sign off on who did what. Well, we took it to Orange County in the first pass. We ran 220 or something like that in the first run, and we had a crower glide in it, I yanked the parachute. Nothing happened because the chute was positioned wrong. I slammed the brake handle, and it had been tack welded, but it wasn't welded, so I didn't have a brake handle, which kind of left me hanging out to dry. And with the crawler glide, you couldn't come down on the motor, so we shortened the car by about 14 foot when it hit a telephone pole. (laughs) You know, it was just one of those things. Uh, It's like, okay, what's it going to be like when I hit? that pole because I know I'm going to hit it. (laughs) uh, We took it back and Frank said, okay, I'll make it good. So he did. Uh, It was a controversial car because you laid down in it. NHRA did not believe that it was safe to lay down and drive the car, that you had to sit upright, which they're probably right. Uh, As soon as Frank changed the seating in it, It was much easier to drive the car and it was more fun but i really didn't like them telling me what i could couldn't do when i got in the car so there again NHRA and had a little we had our feud going
0: yeah um so on that car you know one of the one of the uh, early issues with the uh rear engine cars mid mid mid-engine whatever you want to call them was the handling characteristics uh, with the steering and everything. Did you guys have that same problem with that car?
1: No, because Garlitz and them had worked that out down okay. and figured uh, out, you know, hey, slow the steering down, speed the steering up, whatever, but uh, it, it depended on the car, the balance, uh, where the motor was and all of that. We didn't have a problem. The other thing that was really nice about that car was is that you could the engine and the rear end, all of that. You could unbolt it from the front half of the chassis right behind the driver's seat. So basically, we could carry a complete uh, second uh, half, back half of the car with us. So if we blew a motor, instead of pulling the motor out and replacing it, if we had wanted to, we could have just unbolted it, bolted the new new motor. in. So we thought that was kind of uh, futuristic.
0: Yeah. So I, before we move on to, um, you know, the, your tenure at hot rod and with Peterson publishing, I, I, I want to ask you sort of a general knowledge question. And, uh, just because, you know, I, my fascination with Southern California and the drag strips just in general terms, what was it like out there in SoCal, you know, in the late sixties and the early seventies, you know, you had lions and, uh, when did San Fernando close? That was sixty nine. Did they close?
1: 69, I closed the doors on it.
0: But I mean, you had Bakersfield. You had a. You still had Pomona and tracks out there. What, what was that scene like? I mean, it, it just t- from my perspective. You know, this far away from it now, it it just seems like an incredible period of time to me.
1: Well, it was. And see, now like San Fernando, the the thing that was really kind of unique and great for for running the pond on Sundays was Fontana. Um, or Irwindale, Long Beach—all of them ran Saturdays. They ran Saturday night. So, you know, guys, if their engines survived Saturday night, they knew they could come to San Fernando and run the car with it. And or if they were experimenting with something, they could come out there on Sunday without, uh, oh, you know, ten thousand people watching them, seeing if they were making a mistake. Also, when they put the noise ban in from the city and everything, we ran 12.30 to 3.30. That was our hours. So everybody knew, hey, I can get up in the morning, have breakfast, go to the pond, race. I'll be home for dinner. So it it made it a really nice place to go learn to drive. Um, And it, it but the, uh, going back to your question, it was a f- such a fun period because it, on any given Saturday night, you could go in literally almost any direction on the compass and be at a racetrack to go play. You know, uh, there was a little track that Lou Bainey and, and uh, Louis Center owned, uh, saw this. Now, Saugus didn't get a lot of play, but it was for serious razors. Well, yeah. oh, you better be serious when you got there. The other side of that was is that Don Rackman was one of the uh, ticket sellers. So, uh, you know, you, you if you knew Don real well, you could get in for free. But the other side of that is if you didn't know him, you're going to pay. <laughs> it, it was It was just there's no way to describe what it was like to be able to go any direction and find a track.
0: Yeah. And you know, the, the, here's something that a lot of people, you know, your passive drag racing fan probably doesn't realize about this period of time, guys like Steve Gibbs or Steve Evans or Dave McClellan, you name some of the most well-known people that were, part of the NHRA at some point came out of this whole Southern California track managing, uh, this, the scene, they, they they started managing a small track in Southern California.
1: That's yeah. You know, uh, and, and I will have to throw this out, uh, just as a, th- because we're talking drag strips and stuff. Guys could take a run out if they wanted to, they could take their cars out to Muroc or one of the, uh, tri lakes beds and run. And fact is, when I uh, was gonna get my license in Jimmy G's uh, jet car, (laughs) we drove clear a rim crest and the wind was so high that day that they turned us down. Don't ask me how, but Jimmy talked the guys at Edwards Air Force into letting us in through the gate on one of their back uh, runways. And we ran a couple of runs there, and then he said, run it as long as you think it'll go. So I ran it almost a half mile and then decided it wanted to be an airplane, <laughs> so I shut it off. But we had those uh, facilities that if you wanted to talk your way into them or if you had a connection, you could go play with your car just about anywhere. And you
0: know- Uh, Go ahead, go ahead.
1: Well, you know, a a lot of stuff, uh, I'll go back to safety. The first uh, parachute that was ever put on a funny car, to the best of my knowledge, was when Jim Deese put it on uh, uh, one of the guys. I think it was the, um, boy, I'm not quite sure whose car it was. It was one of the uh, Detroit guys. Anyway, they brought it out to San, we took it to San Fernando on an evening uh, during the week. Now, we had the bridge at the end of the track that you could go under. And so, you know, the deal was, is that Jimmy bolted this parachute uh, on the back end of this car. And he didn't even have a parachute pull on it. So I rode in the back and when he knocked, I pulled the chute. Well, the first run, nothing happened. Second run, he reset the parachute. uh, And guess what? That little sweetheart opened, and I wound up plastered against the roll cage because I didn't have anything to hang on to. (laughs) We slipped under the bridge. And so when the cops come out looking, you know, they drive over. They knew what we were doing, but they could diplomatically drive by. And they did. And left us alone. But see here again, uh, the Ram Chargers. I'm sure it was a Ram Chargers car. Uh, the the thing that was nice there is again you learned how to position safety equipment that nobody else was going to let somebody ride in the back in, you know, in the trunk of the car and, and take a run like that. It was my car. Let to, to <laughs> do it.
0: <laughs> that's, a, that's a great story, Harry.
1: <laughs> oh, but that's how you learn things. You know, uh, Dick Landy called me. He said, you know, I've got this car with an altered wheelbase, and it's doing wheel stands. Nobody will let me run the car because he say it's unsafe. What do you think? Eh? Bring it out. As long as it goes straight, you're okay. If you go sideways, get it off the track and don't shut it down, you're out. He made some runs proved that it would go straight. The next thing you know, you know, altered wheelbase cars were running everywhere in, in show, you know, paid shows. But again, and, and I'm not knocking hard or any of the other guys that ran tracks, but they didn't want to expose their, they don't want to expose the track to something that might come back from the insurance and get them sued and all of that. Yeah. I figured this way if it's going straight run it if it's not going straight you don't shut it up you won't be back again if it's going straight and putting on a show then let's make it let's make it a tush